Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have this privilege of opening your word and uh, beginning this particular study of the book of Ecclesiastes. You have preserved it for us. It speaks in every age because it's your word. It's an eternal truth. We pray, Father, as we go through this study, both today and in the coming months, that we would understand what you have preserved for us, to understand it well, and to respond in accordance with the message that you have conveyed through it. Help me to be a vessel fit for your use. Help me to be clear and concise, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think I've told you this before, that we have a pretty consistent routine with our little children at bedtime. Without going to all the details of it, it always ends this way, with a kiss and a hug to our two little children, and Asa makes sure that he says a statement, and we respond in a refrain, and then he makes a statement, and we respond in a refrain, and usually more than one time each. And it's like this. It has to be like this. If it's out of order, it's a do-over. <laughs> Love you. See you tomorrow. Good night. Respond. Okay. And then, love you infinity. And respond. And then that happens numerous times before we finally leave. And if we don't do it to a satisfaction, there's great dissatisfaction. (laughs) Infinity, as you probably know, is an unlimited extent of time, space, or quantity. An unlimited extent of time, space, or quantity. Eternity is infinite or unending time. This morning, as we briefly try to introduce the book of Ecclesiastes, I want you and I to have in the back of our mind this question. What does it take to fill eternity? What does it take to fill eternity? Our lives are filled with unexpected twists and turns. Not everything goes in accordance with our plans and our desires. And not everything that happens in our lives makes total sense to us. Solomon agrees with you. He agrees with us that not everything that happens makes total sense. In the process of communicating his research, he's going to let us know that sometimes the righteous are infirmed and the unrighteous prosper And this to him is a vexation of his soul. This to him makes life hard to grasp. He's very good at stating this. As you read through the wisdom literature of the Bible, which is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, as you read through them, one of the things that you'll find is is God does such a wonderful job of mapping out what life is like. As you read through the book of Job, 
Actually, I'll start with Proverbs, because that's how I have it in my notes. As you read through the book of Proverbs, you'll notice the norms of life. Things that make sense. For instance, if you were to drive down the street into a, a city that has a grid, you know, okay, you're going to go one block, and you can take a right, and you can go another block. The layout of most cities in grid work is pretty basic. Proverbs is kind of like that. The norms of life. This is what you can expect. Chain up a child in the way he will go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. But we also have other parts of wisdom literature, like the book of Job. As you read through Job, you'll see the sufferings and sorrows of life. Things that we'd rather avoid. It's like driving through a cemetery or driving into a intensive care ward or a hospice ward. When you read through the book of Proverbs, excuse me, Psalms, you get lots of flavors. Some where there's sorrow and some where there's great jubilation. When you read through Song of Solomon, some of the joys of life are discovered as a man and a woman write of their um, affectionate and intimate love for one another. As you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you will notice the abnormalities of life. You might be able to call it, our expectations are dashed. If Proverbs is a city grid, and Job is driving through a graveyard, Ecclesiastes is like those windy roads with hairpin turns, right on the edge of a cliff. And if you're not careful... You go off the edge to your peril. Ecclesiastes deals with the, the fringes of life, the, the things that, that don't make sense to us. Not in its entirety. There's, there's great logic to the book of Ecclesiastes. Finding that logic is not as easy to discover. On first glance, the preacher, the word there is coaleth, it means assembler or gatherer. The preacher, at first glance, is a pessimist. Isn't that how you read it? As you start reading it, it's like, like whoa, dude, back off, chill out. There are, the, life is okay, it's going to be all right, Solomon, it's going to be all right. But that's not, he's not a pessimist. Instead, I think the more you read and study what's written in this book, the more you'll see that the preacher is a realist. These things are real. The challenges to the way things go are real. Not everything makes sense under the sun. Not everything makes sense when we just look on a plane of this world. When it's just about terra firma. And our fleshy bodies and our fleshly minds, not everything makes sense to us. He does not avoid the hard questions in life. He seems to really care or chew on, he seems to really chew on the brokenness of this life as we live it. It's an important concept. He's not an atheist, and he is not an agnostic. He is portraying 
the very real challenges that everyone faces. And he tests different solutions to our problems. So, as we try to open up an introduction as succinctly as possible, here we go. God has placed eternity in our hearts. God has placed eternity in our hearts. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to read a text in just a minute. But I want for us to understand that one of the key themes, I believe, to this book is implied from here and explicitly stated differently elsewhere, but it's found in Ecclesiastes 3, beginning in verse 9. Listen to what he says. Ecclesiastes 3.9 What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business or the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done, what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put olam, that's the Hebrew word for eternity, God has put olam forever into man. Think of it this way. God has put a black hole in man. God has put the Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle in man. Sucked in, where'd it go? Have no idea. Bottomless pit. It's important to understand this. It's a longing that needs to be filled. And Solomon explicitly now will deal with this concept of eternity in our heart with a different phraseology. Take a look at chapter 1, chapter 1 and verse 2. This is a Really, it's a related theme that is explicitly stated and repeated. It's an expression that brackets the whole book. In Ecclesiastes 1-2, he makes the statement, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. Say it with me. All is vanity. Well, this is just his hypothesis, right? Not so much. Look at the end. Chapter 12. He has used a rhetorical device called an inclusio to let us know that this is the topic. Verse 8 of chapter 12, Ecclesiastes 12, 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Will you say it with me? All is vanity. He uses the Hebrew word havel or habel, depending on how you want to pronounce it in chasing after the meaning of this expression, there have been many and a wide array of ways to capture it. So I want to give you a few good samples of trying to capture this concept that is written here as vanity in other translations, meaninglessness. Some translations, merest breath. I want to try to give us some things, ways to think through it, okay? Craig Bartholomew wrote this. Havel indicates the teacher's despair 
in his quest for meaning in life. But it should not be understood as a final conclusion. A parallel expression in Ecclesiastes is a chasing after the wind, which helps us grasp what the teacher means by meaningless. It is not that there is no meaning in life. Rather, if there is meaning in life, the teacher simply cannot grasp it, just like grasping the wind. Life is utterly enigmatic. It's an enigma. Some have used the illustration of trying to use your fingers to catch the smoke after you strike a match or blow it out. Grab it. Grab it. Grab it. You ever get it? What happens? He says, I, I think I've got it now. Nope. Went through your fingers. I think I've got it now. Nope. You don't got it. I'm trying. I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to grab onto it. I, I, want, I want utter and perfect meaning to everything I do. Ah. Goes around my fingers. Others, like Philip Ryken, uh, gives this idea. He writes, Taken literally, the Hebrew word havel refers to a breath or vapor, like a puff of smoke rising from a fire, or the cloud of steam that comes from hot breath on a frosty morning. Life is like that. It is elusive, ephemeral, and enigmatic. Life is so insubstantial that when we try to get our hands on it, it slips right through our fingers. Is Solomon alone in this feeling? Is he simply a jaded cynic? Here's a, here's a more important question, even than those two. Perhaps this is just an archaic and simply pre-cross way of thinking. Maybe this is just what it's like until the cross comes. But once the cross comes, we would never feel this way or think this way at all. Maybe this is just an archaic pre-cross of Jesus Christ way of thinking. And I want to challenge your thinking on that as well. Because Paul had something to say about this, and you read it this morning. In Romans chapter 8, listen to what he says, and if you want to take a look in the front cover of your bulletin again, you'll see these words there. It's also on the screen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation itself, the creation itself, ladies and gentlemen, what does that incorporate? Everything. You are a created being. You sit on the earth. It's a created sphere. You sit amongst the air that has all kinds of atoms floating around. You realize you're bumping into atoms right now? It's weird, isn't it? Nonetheless, it's a created thing. Everything around you is a created thing. You are a created thing. For the creation waits with eager longing uh, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to what? Futility. That's another word for vanity. That's another word for this 
I don't, I can't quite get my hands on all the things that I want to get my hands on. The creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who's that? The creator. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. God has placed eternity in our hearts. God has subjected the creation to futility under the sun. Under the sun. That's here. That's the now. That's this side of looking at what really is beyond the sun that we desperately, desperately need. That's a someone. It's not the stars, folks. It's it's not things that are on the other side of the sun. It's not some planet somewhere. It's a someone. That someone fills the futility. Secondly, how do I fill eternity? How do I fill eternity? This is what Solomon tries to figure out. How do I fill eternity? So the preacher tries to fill that longing. That, that eternity that God has placed within him. He tries to fill it in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, with wisdom. I, I will learn myself. I, I will learn all of the schemes of life. I will learn all of the literature that the, the wise scribes of this world have ever offered. I, according to Jesus, Solomon is the wisest person that ever lived. I, I will consider all the things that I see as I look at plants and animals and people, as I observe the scene and I see life, I'll try to figure it all out. Uh, just so you know, at the end of that, he says, if you're really, really, really wise and you figure all these things out, you are going to be really, really broken. That's what he says in verse 18, chapter 1. I, I, so I'll try to fight, fill it with wisdom. Nope, that didn't work. I know... I know what I can do. I am going to eat pizza and drink cherry Coke and root beer. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow it up with a Greg's cake and, and ice cream. He tries to fill eternity with self-indulgence. I know what I'll do. I'll find a woman. And another woman, 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 to 1,000 of them. And none of them will fill this hole. It's too deep, and it's too wide. It's not enough. Self-indulgence doesn't cut it. So, we'll move on. And we'll fill it with wise living. So I did things that were, were smart. I made good choices. And you know what I found? Oh, Ooh. and pause. We're filling eternity, right? We're trying to fill eternity. This is what he's, he's testing this. And then he introduces us to another theme in the book. 
as he's talking about wise living as a way to fill eternity that God has placed in his heart, he says something that we need to hear. So take a look at chapter 2 and verse 14. Here's a smart statement. Verse 14, ready? The wise person has his eyes in his head. (laughs) Thank you for telling me that. But the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. It's vanity. Live, live a wise life. It'll solve all your problems. No, Benjamin Franklin. This also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is, listen, no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten, including you, buddy. Long forgotten. They're going to forget you. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind in this section he brings forth this theme no matter what no matter who you are no matter how wise or foolish no matter how rich or how accomplished everyone ends up having a funeral cling to it cling on to your stuff cling on to your people Cling on to your job. Cling on to your mind. Cling on to your health. Cling on to your muscles. Cling on to your beauty. Guess what? You look pretty good today, but you know what you really look like. Like, you put on some makeup, didn't you? You did your hair. What would you look like if you didn't do your hair, didn't put on makeup? (laughs) I put on a lot of makeup today. You can't get enough makeup to make this thing look better. So I'm just stuck with it, and so are you. It all goes away. Next, he turns to his workmanship. I'll fill it with my workmanship. And he, and he finds out that's not going to work. That's in eight, uh, chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. It's easy to get stuck on the pessimistic elements of this gathering of teachings But that is too short-sighted, and it is too simplistic. If we we just read the things that we talked about this morning, you would think that Solomon is just a bummed-out old man thinking, what does it all mean, and why am I here? That's not true. Solomon lays out a trail of evidence to the contrary. Thirdly, in our discussion, God gives good gifts in this journey. This is a theme. God gives good gifts in this journey. He discovered through his investigation that God was not indifferent or uninvolved. It is clear that Solomon knows that there is much more beyond the sun. Beyond the sun, on the other side of the sun. 
he declares God to be present and good. Just let's get a flavor for it, will you please with me? Chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or can have enjoyment? For to one who pleases God or Him, excuse me, for the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This is also hard to gather. This is hard. This is vanity. It's striving after the wind. It's hard to, to grab onto this. But think about it this way. If those of us that know God, for, for Solomon, knowing God, believing God, having God as his portion, God as his inheritance, they knew that they would have an inheritance on the earth in the latter day. They knew that all of the things that they saw was part of God's glorious kingdom, and they would be part of it. So everyone's working really, really, really hard, and everyone dies. But those that know God, they will endure and enjoy all the things that have been worked so hard on. It'll all be left to the one who pleases God, the one who is fearing God, the one who knows God. And for us, as we understand this full-bloomed, it's the one who knows Jesus Christ, who is a fountain of living water. Look at chapter 3. In verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. Listen carefully. This is God's gift to man. God did this. Chapter 5, please, in verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and Fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Listen carefully. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions, listen carefully, and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God for you. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Listen, Solomon is not a jaded cynic. He's letting us know if you only let these good things be the source of your joy, you will find no meaning. If you find your joy in people, places, and things, you will find yourself distressed because you know you're going to die and you can't bring it with you. But on the other hand, if as you navigate through this life, understanding who God is and how great he is and he gives us these things to enjoy, what you'll do is you'll enjoy the things God gives and know that you will go to your eternal home and be with him. You'll be satisfied. You'll be satisfied. Chapter 7 and verse 14. In the days of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that men may not find out anything that will be after him. God has placed eternity in your heart. You can't make 
an Excel spreadsheet to navigate life, it won't work. But you can enjoy the good things God has given. Chapter 8 and verse 15, please. It says, and I command what? Joy. He didn't commend vexation. He didn't commend vanity. I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of the life that God has given him under the sun. Chapter 9, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the grave to which you are going. There's no thought when you're dead. Enjoy the things God gives you now. I wonder if there's ever anywhere else that God gives us the same type of thought. Have you ever heard the expression, I believe it's from Paul, I believe it's in the first book of 1 Corinthians, God has given us all things richly, to enjoy? Have you heard that? God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not trying to squash you and ruin your life. God wants you to understand, if you live your life based upon the treats, you're going to be sick and you're going to vomit and then you'll die. But if instead... The treats accentuate all the good things God does, and you find your fulfillment in Him. All those treats are just glorious things to remind us of how good He is. Solomon is telling us this. The preacher of the book wants us to understand that the best things in this life come from the hand of God. But those things, if pressed beyond their capabilities, will result in terrible distress. When we view the good things of life as a gift from God rather than as gain in themselves. The good things are like decorations on the walls of your home. They pretty it up and make it homey. Doug Wilson says it this way. The gift of God does not make this meaninglessness go away. The gift of God makes this vanity enjoyable. All those treats... It makes the hard-to-grasp things ah, enjoyable. Look at the things that God has given me to enjoy. He's given me my wife and my children and, and a, a, a wonderful home and, and vehicles and clothes. He, he's given me plenty of food to eat and people that love me and that I can love. Look at all these blessings from God, little gifts. Give them more responsibility than they, than they can bear and they will become curses. It's almost like they become ash in your mouth. Don't press the gifts to do what only the giver can do. Enjoy the giver first, and the gifts will have great meaning. But this is not the extent of Solomon's conclusion. In order to truly enjoy the good things of life as gifts from God, 
We must be properly related to him. So, number four, know God as he is. Know God as he is. So the preacher encourages his readers and listeners to enjoy the good gifts of God and to live out lives in reverent respect of the God of the universe. We can only just touch on this for a few moments, but take a look at chapter 3 and verse 14. Chapter 3 and verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people... What? Fear before Him. They come to know Him as He is. Verse 17 now. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. God superintends His creation. Look a little further, please. Chapter 5 and verse 7. He's really warning us about making oaths and and going into the, 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 the place of worship Without proper intention, verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Going a little further, please. Chapter 7 and verse 18. He says, It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Uh, you, You will figure out what all that means in its context as we come, but we're getting the big idea here. Chapter 8 and verse 12. Chapter 8 verse 12. Though a sinner die, uh, does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. In other words, he won't last forever. might have... Good things to enjoy here and now, but there is an end to that. Chapter 12 now. After his inclusio of verse 8, where he says uh, everything is vanity, now he's coming to his, okay, now, now, we, now we really want to tell you how we conclude from this discussion and this study. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed uh, are the collected sayings. They are given by what? One shepherd. Who's that shepherd? Is it the collector? Preacher. Is it Coaleth, the one who gathers all of this? No. He has an authority above him. All of this comes from one shepherd. Verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and a much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Philip Ryken wrote, The book of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that the fear of God is not just the beginning, but also the end, the goal of our existence. Riken also wrote, Ecclesiastes is really about the meaninglessness of life without God. 
But because the writer never gives up his belief in God, his ultimate purpose is to show us how meaningful life can be when we see things from God's perspective. His message is not that nothing matters, but that everything does. And so this brings us to one very important and final point. Eternity can only be filled with something infinite. Eternity can only be filled with something infinite. Turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. That's page 889 in one of our church Bibles. Jesus was speaking with the woman at the well. And he makes this, has this conversation with her. Beginning in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God has placed eternity in man. And Jesus said, I can fill that eternity gap. I can fill the Bermuda Triangle. I can fill the black hole. I can fill it with living, overflowing, satisfying, eternal water, which is eternal life. Look at chapter 10, John 10, beginning in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He's talking about filling the eternity in your heart. Chapter 17, please. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give what? Eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life. That they know You. The only true God. And Jesus Christ whom You have sent. This is how You fill Eternity. You fill the eternity in your heart with an eternal, infinite, everlasting God. He's done everything necessary to fill that hole that produces meaninglessness or a lack of gathering. But 
but with Jesus Christ knowing that we are, have been saved in hope. It gives us great meaning to the every moment of the every day with every good and every ill. You can only fill the eternal vacuum in your soul with an infinite eternal God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you have a longing within you? Do you sense your need? You can try to fill it temporarily with all kinds of stuff, but nothing will satiate your longing except God's glorious Son, Jesus Christ. It is this one who gives eternal life and fills our eternal need that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. What has Jesus done to provide us with eternal life? He lived perfectly, sinlessly. He lived in full obedience to the law of God. And He laid down His life as a once-for-all, perfect sacrifice for sin. He was buried. And on the third day, God raised Him from the dead, demonstrating that the payment was accepted and symbolic of the fact that He is the firstborn of many brothers. The firstfruits of those who sleep. Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to fill us eternally. 